Dear listener, this is Interfaith-ish. I'm your host, Jack Gordon, and every other Wednesday right here on Tacoma Radio, we bring you bold conversations about what we believe, why we believe, and how we navigate the common ground and differences between our traditions. Dear listener, this week we continue our series of crossover episodes featuring guests from terrific interfaith and religion-themed podcasts that I've encountered during the pandemic. Yasmin Bendas is a journalist based in North Carolina and host of Me and My Muslim Friends. The series features frank conversations between Yasmin and fellow Muslims about topics like racism, conversion, and mental health. My second guest, Kim Schultz, is an actor who found her way into refugee advocacy. Currently, Kim works as coordinator of creative initiatives and events at the Chicago Theological Seminary's Interreligious Institute, where she is host of the miniseries Our Seven Neighbors. Each episode, Kim, who is not Muslim herself, talks with a variety of Muslim thought leaders from across the country, as well as interfaith allies who are working to eliminate Islamophobia. It was a great pleasure to listen to these two insightful storytellers talk about their craft and the ways they hope to see their work create change in our society. Here's my interview with Kim and Yasmin. I got to say, I love uh, the title, Me and My Muslim Friends, because the song that comes into my head is the Red Hot Chili Peppers song, Me and My Friends. Do you know that one? Are you an, an old school Chili Peppers lover by any chance like I am? <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a pretty deep cut. He just got, you know, they're like, they, they've been friends since, I don't know, high school or whatever. So he's just, they're just singing about how much they love each other. So I'm always singing like, me and my, me and my, me and my Muslim friends, you know, like them. <laughs> I'm gonna have to have a listen to that one. I do know some Red Hot Chili Pepper songs, but I was also born in 1991, so yeah, that was after all of the good Red Hot Chili Peppers <laughs> albums already were were out. Um, but yeah, for if you want an idea for for season two for a new theme song, yeah, um, we'll just modify that one. Okay, yeah. we'll have to look into it. My wife is is friends with Flea's wife, so maybe we we can hook something up. <laughs> Anyway, um, glad to have the both of you on. Um, I'm really excited about this uh, show, particularly because I'd, I'd love to just talk about storytelling and the idea of what goes into storytelling in um, an interfaith context, and particularly when it comes to, to advocacy and um, you know claiming and affirming spaces for, for oneself. So, Kim, you're a a professional storyteller um, by background. So what is it for you that's powerful when, about storytelling and creating narratives, particularly when it comes to interfaith work? Yeah, I'm a big believer in um, in listening, gathering, and and sharing our stories and, and the power that comes with listening to it. And there's actually all kinds of brain research um, that has been done that... Um, uh, that what happens when people listen to stories and hear a story mm. and how that actually changes the makeup of the brain for a short while. And so there's some actual science behind the power of what storytelling does. And they say mm. that after you hear a good story, if you want to instigate some change or create a, use it for a social change, um, you know, betterment awareness that you have, it's like 48 hours or 72 hours or something like that. It's like two or three days where the, where it's still like, the brain is still affected and people are still influenceable. Mm. And so then, mm -hmm. you know, that's the time where you want them to, you know, send the emails or donate the money or volunteer, mm -hmm. you know, to mm -hmm. engage people at that level. And then after that, then it kind of starts um, falling away. Uh, and then people remember the story as, oh, yeah, that really interesting thing that happened or that I saw that play that was really or, you know, yeah. I heard and it, it's kind of a memory versus a real active thing. And so I just think that's super cool mm -hmm. and um and i think that that just shows the power of what stories can do and so i've shifted my career i'm an actor a writer a storyteller and kind of fell into um interfaith work and um have been incorporating the use of stories in that because um because of their power and because it gives people a chance to own something and it gives us uh, outside of that person a chance to experience something that's not ours. 
Mm -hmm. Yes, Ben, how about, how about for you? Um, when you think about storytelling as a journalist, what, it, what is it about um, telling stories that's, that's powerful to, uh, to communicate these ideas? What a question. So I think, you know, it's so um, interesting because before I went to journalism school at Chapel Hill, I just considered myself a writer. I really liked writing. And then in journalism school, you kind of get trained to be like the backpack journalist where you're trained to not only write, but, you know, do video, do broadcast, do stand-up reporting, mm. um, do radio if you like, um, do photography, do documentary work. You know, it's all kind of combined and in, in sort of understanding all of the different avenues that you can tell stories. So one of the things that I became really interested in was script writing while I was in school, because mm. it was still the written portion, but the, like, thing that really stood out to me was you couldn't have a good, even a TV broadcast, even a good documentary without strong writing. So I kind of was able to kind of weave myself into other formats in journalism school by recognizing a need for strong writing. But what I love about storytelling and what draws me to it is just talking to people, interviewing people, when you get the right quote, um, I'm definitely not someone who likes to be interviewed as much as I like to ask questions. <laughs> I think I'm just really curious and I really love people. Um, so I could literally talk to people all the time, which is really strange to say because I'm very introverted. Hmm. But I just think that everyone just has such rich stories. And growing up with a diverse background that I've had, I realized that we don't always get to touch on them. Well, I wanted to ask you specifically, you mentioned your, your own background, so I wanted to ask if you would tell us a little bit about um, what your family background is and, um, and how you've explored some, some stories having to do with, with your own identity. Yeah, of course. So I'm a North Carolina native. I was born and raised in Winston-Salem, and I went to Wake Forest, which is also in Winston-Salem. So. I kind of stayed in my hometown for literally like 24 years. And then I moved to Chapel Hill to go to UNC Chapel Hill and I now live in Raleigh. So I've stayed in North Carolina my whole life, but mm -hmm. my parents are immigrants. My dad is an Algerian um, immigrant and my mother is an Iranian immigrant. They met here in Raleigh. So North Carolina is really kind of where they started their chapter and where they've stayed. Um, mm -hmm. It's just me and my brother Hamid. Um, he is currently in DC. And my mother is Shia, my dad's Sunni. So it's just, I've always mm. kind of grown up in this mis mixed ethnic household, mixed nationality, mixed languages. My dad doesn't speak Farsi. My mom doesn't really speak Arabic. Um, so they communicate in English. And when me and my mom are talking, my dad doesn't really understand the conversation, which is really helpful. Um, so I just grew up around all of these different pieces and different foods. And it became like a really natural thing for me to just take these parts and just recognize that they are part of who I am. And I didn't have to divide myself. I didn't have to lose any of it to be an American in North Carolina. These were all just pieces of who I am. And when you can do that, you start to recognize, you know, the diversity around you and in other people and the parts of them that, you know, they can't exactly express because not everyone without a mixed background can understand that kind of complexity. And you went to um, Algeria on a, yeah. on a project exploring aspects of Al Algerian culture. So I wanted to ask if you, if you would just share briefly about what that project was about and maybe something mm -hmm. that you learned about yourself and um, oh, for sure. going back there. So I did, I did both my undergraduate fieldwork in anthropology in Algeria, and I also did my master's work in Algeria. Um, so my first project in Algeria was on the disappearing tradition of indigenous tattooing. Um, so I was really focused on facial tattoos, um, the symbolic meaning of them, reasons for disappearance, which is largely due to Islam and like changing ideals of beauty, which is not tattoos on your face anymore, really. Um, mm and just also contributions to identity, which from my dad's family, we're indigenous Algerian or Amazigh, and our particular group is called the Shawiya, and they have a heavy tattooing tradition. Um, and then my next project, 
Um, I focused on climate change and sheep herding, which is very different. Yeah, that's <laughs> very different. <laughs> but I was really interested in this region. We had like heavy tattooing on the women's side and sheep herding and farming is a really big in the mountainous area that we lived in. My main reason for wanting to do my field work in Algeria was um, as a way to reverse the brain drain. Algeria kind of like... Mm. Um, Iran has a lot of immigrants who become educated elsewhere and stay elsewhere. And mm -hmm. um, this is particularly true for Algeria because it was a colonized country. Uh -huh. um, and so a lot of the youth, if they want to, if they have the opportunity to, their goal is to get out. Mm. Um, and so I kind of realized that and I wanted to be able to use where I was to kind of put those stories back in and be able to create a platform for those stories, a lot of people hadn't heard about indigenous tattoos in English. They might have heard about it in French because during colonization right. it was written about. Um, right. So there were just those certain aspects where it was kind of reversing that knowledge and saying that those stories mattered and, and being able to go back and do that was really meaningful to me. And I learned a lot about our own history and our own culture for sure. And you went to your, your father's village or region, is that is that right? Yeah, um, my dad is from the Betna region of Algeria. It's on the northeast side close to Tunisia. So mm -hmm. after the split of Sudan, Algeria is actually geographically the largest country in Africa now. Mm -hmm. So it's a massive country. So that's why I kind of say it's on the Tunisia side, not the Morocco side, not the Mali side. <laughs> uh -huh. um, it's in the mountains in the northeast, and it's absolutely gorgeous. I just love it there. I didn't get to go a lot when I was younger because Algeria was in a civil war. Um, mm -hmm. And we call that period the dark decade. So I actually didn't, I went to Algeria once when I was really young and I didn't remember. I went again when I was around 10 years old. And the next time I went, I was 19. Um, mm -hmm. And since then, since I was 21 or so, I've been back like close to six or seven times, I think. Oh, wow, so that's great. I've been going as often as I can, yeah. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, Kim, I, I wanted to, to switch gears and also ask you a little bit about your background and how you grew up. You're the host of uh, this current season of, of this podcast, Our Seven Neighbors, um, which the Interreligious Institute is putting out as, as a way to explore Muslim stories and, and talk about folks within the, the Muslim community as a way of contributing to the, to the, uh, the pushback against uh, Islamophobia. You yourself are not Muslim, right? Correct. Um, so how did, how did you grow up? What was your religious formation? Um, nowhere near as interesting as Yasmin's. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> my background is I was raised Christian and in Minnesota and very white and liberal, um, certainly, but... Um, but, you know, very Christian. And I had growing up a couple Jewish friends and certainly no Muslim friends. Mm. Um, and, Do you remember the first and, Muslim person that you met? Um, I, yeah, I was in Minneapolis. Um, there was, there's a, there is a strong Somali community in Minneapolis. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that was a beginning introdu introduction before I left Minneapolis. Mm. Um, uh, and I, I just knew nothing about it. You know, as I look back, I think, I just remember thinking how exotic my Jewish friends were. And I just think how funny, <laughs> how funny life is when, and, and I try to remember that compassion when, when I go nuts nowadays with people and anti-Muslim bias and bigotries. And, and I, and, and I think, um, I think of the power of, you know, introducing stories to people who've never heard stories and mm. meeting people, which, which is, you know, I think it's funny that, um, I, I mean, I love your podcast, Yasmin. Um, I listened to several episodes and this idea of, hey, this is me and my Muslim friends or the idea with our podcast of, you know, our neighbors, like this, this humanizing of, um, of folks that, you know, have, have really gotten the shaft lately mm -hmm. mm. and, um, you know, for quite a while. So, um, and I ended up going, um, uh, I ended up going on a trip to um, Jordan, Lebanon and Syria in 2009 with an organization as a writer and actor um, to interview Iraqi refugees. And that was kind mm. of my foray into the work. And, and then my life changed forever. And I, you know, went on this trip thinking, Oh, I'll just go and have this amazing trip to the Middle East. And, you know, I'm sure it's going to be hard. And, you know, refugees at that point in 2009, we, you know, we didn't pay attention at all to 
the you know the damage that we had done in Iraq and hmm. the four million refugees who were currently homeless um, in no small part due to um, the the work that the U.S. had done over there and the invasion. And so, you know, my job was to bring these stories of these refugees back to the U.S. Um, at that point. Uh, and I had a real, you know, game changer. It really, it changed everything for me having heard these stories. Um, and I came back and I wrote a play called No Place Called Home and, and performed that. And then out of that came a memoir because I ended up falling in love with an Iraqi refugee, with a whole, which is a whole nother story. <laughs> and um, out of that came the memoir, Three Days in Damascus. Um, and so then my work became really shifting into advocacy work for refugees. And again, this was 11 years ago. And so it was a different, it was a different time. And when Syria fell apart, it, you know, there was so much connection, obviously, between Iraq and Syria and the refugees um, going back and forth. And, um, and then that became a, a mover into the looking at my faith and looking at interfaith work and, um, and I have a dear um, Muslim friend here in Chicago, where I live now, who, after the 2016 election, said, hey, we need to do something. And we started an interface storytelling show mm. um, uh, called Sisters a Story, where there's a, a Jewish a Muslim. She said to me, Kim, you're Christian, right? And I'm always like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and she said, well, because I have this Jewish friend, and, and I thought maybe we could put this play together. And I said, sure. And um, I always feel like I'm the bad Christian because... Um, I, uh, she's a very, she's a good hijabi Muslim and she's, she's very faithful. And, um, uh, my Jewish friend as well, the joke is that I'm, I'm the bad Christian, but, but they're like, no, 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 you're not. But I thought, I thought uh, you were going to say that the, the tables had, had been turned and you were, you were pigeonholed like so many, um, Muslim actors are into, you know, playing terrorists and bad guys on TV and stuff. And so you right, just played exactly. recurring roles as the, the bigoted <laughs> Christian character. <laughs> exactly. Like, why am I always the bigoted Christian? Why can't I? <laughs> Can you imagine if that were our world? Uh, and so then out of that, I started working at the Interreligious Institute, um, not connected to that. But, uh, you know, as I look at, at my journey of my life, it makes sense. Um, mm -hmm. And so uh, and so I'm my, you know, I'm trying to use my white Christian privilege to um, open up and create space for other voices. And uh I, I, you know, if people who I know there's a lot of people who grew up like I did um, to say, hey, here's here's some neighbors, here's mm -hmm. some people, here's here's some um, things that, you know, look how say the same we all are, mm -hmm. you know, some of that basic level. Yeah. Um, and also to dig in deeper, though, in terms of um, what is the scholarly work behind this? And so with our podcast, we, we focus on a story and then we have an interview with um, folks doing work in the field. Um, doing nonprofit work generally, and then also then a scholarly conversation, um, which kind of hopes to lift up and to siphon out and to find the, you know, so now what kind of aspect yeah. of it. Well, I think that the work that you guys are doing at, at um, you know, again, expanding people's worldview, you know, introducing them to people that they might not otherwise meet is, you know, it's such laudable work and necessary work at this time. And, and really, it seems like that's also, Yasmin, what, what your show is about. I, I, I have to say that I, I, I love your friends. <laughs> I love your Muslim <laughs> friends. Um, you know, you say at the end of your show that if you don't have a Muslim friend, you know, you can count on, on, on these um, Muslims as your friends. And I love the way that you, you have that as your, as your sign-off. And it, it really does feel like, it's such, a, it's such an intimate conversation that you all are having with your friends, and they seem like really cool people. So please Thank tell all you. your friends that they, they sound really cool, and I want them to be my <laughs> friends also. That was, kind I of agree. The, that was kind of the idea, is that among our, my friends, we have these conversations, but no one ever really asks us those questions. Mm -hmm. And the things that we see in the media or around us that are portrayed about us are so different from the conversations we actually have. Um, and I think a reason for that is because no one really ever asked us the questions or had the insight to ask us those kinds of questions. And so it was like, this is what we talk about. You know, this is what right. we grew up talking about. Um, this is what matters to us. 
These are issues yeah. affecting our community. And if you're outside our community and you want to have a listen in, it's just a conversational kind of talk. And also, um, Kim, I did take a look at your podcast as well. And I noticed you interviewed Layla Ali from Muslim Woman 4, who's here in Raleigh. Um, so that's, yeah. I noticed that connection. I was like, oh, that's so cool. And I listened to her part. Um, so, Oh, she's a powerhouse. I yes. love meeting her. <laughs> mm-hmm. And Muslim Woman 4, what they're doing, we attended their iftar dinner last uh, Ramadan. Yes. Um, and, I actually just mm-hmm, met her last year. They're doing amazing year. work. Yes. I just met her last year. Oh, and okay. Iman Ali on our um, Black Muslims and Racism episode is also in Muslim Women 4. So there are some connections to Raleigh, even on your podcast, which is really cool <laughs> to see. Yeah. And I just, the work, I, I had no idea the work, I had no idea of a lot of the work going on in the South, but certainly in Raleigh and, and the strong work that, that Muslim Women 4 is doing is really remarkable. Well, I think that one, one thing that is... Um, is interesting about just what you said, Kim. You know the the work that's being done in the South. Your your Ramadan road trip episode is it stayed, I think, exclusively in the South, right? It was in in Tennessee and Atlanta and um, yeah. up to D.C. and North Carolina. And you know, so you you think about these places that oh maybe there there aren't very Muslim many Muslims that are there. But then you know Yasmin's show. You know all these are people. They're young people that grew up. And in that area, um, and and if you think about it, you know I think actually this connects also to Jasmine, your other focus, which is on doing um, uh, medicine journalism, journalism that has to do with the with with medicine and health. Um, you know the joke is that a lot of people say, oh, well, I don't know any Muslims, I've never met a Muslim, but then they say, but my kid's pediatrician is Dr. Khan, and our dentist <laughs> is Dr. Ali, and the hygienist is named <laughs> Fatima, and, you know, they are they are there, we just aren't interacting that with, with folks from, you know, minority faith communities, maybe specifically Muslims, you know, on a religion level, having these conversations about religion, right? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that there's, um, I discovered, um, you know, larger Muslim populations in the South than I would have predicted, mm-hmm. and also larger ally communities that I would have predicted, um, with, you know, the South being what the South is, and the challenges that a lot of times um, the Southern states have with bigotry and um, racism. So uh, I was I was pleasantly surprised even with evangelical Christian organizations stepping up and saying, we are not this type of evangelical and this is not what we believe. And this is, this is not what, what Jesus has taught us. Mm -hmm. And this is now a small portion of those evangelicals, but it is at least a voice within that community saying, you know, no to the racism and bigotry. So um, yeah, on on the, on our road trip, I was, I was pleasantly surprised. Um, and of course we shouldn't be, but like in one of our episodes too, we meet, um, Okolo Rashid, who is the head of the international or the founder of the director, I should say, of the international Muslim museum in deep South Mississippi. Mm -hmm. And you think, you know, Mississippi, that there's this, it was the first Muslim museum. Um, I just think that's remarkable. And Yasmin, on your show, you had one of your, your friends who is the first uh, um, commissioner, district commissioner, is that right, for, for North Carolina? County commissioner for Durham. County commissioner. Um, mm-hmm. And I remember driving around the Triangle area and, and seeing signs with this young hijabi brown woman, um, you know, in her campaign posters and just thinking, oof. This lady's got got her work cut out for her, but lo and behold, she won, and and she's she's there in her in her position. She did win. I she, I think they're still waiting on the final, but she's kind of like the in because she doesn't have an opposition, from what I understand, and mm-hmm. she won in the primary. So amazing. I also think that all of the county commissioners, if I'm remembering correctly, for Durham, I don't live in Durham County. I live in Wake County. Um, mm-hmm. Are turned out to be all women and lots of women of color to show there. So what's going on in Durham is actually really interesting. Yeah. Kim, for you, you know, you're at a, an academic institution, and, and I think that one, one thing that can sometimes happen, especially when we're doing, you know, interfaith work, is, is that the, the sort of scholarship brain <laughs> or academic brain can sometimes take over and it can become very clinical and 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 maybe dry for 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 a public audience really to to learn and be touched 
um, in their hearts. So I'm curious how how maybe you guys have some of those conversations at the Interreligious Institute or um, Chicago uh, Theological Seminary more generally around really humanizing some of these subjects um, so that so that general audiences can can really take them in, drink them in, and and be changed by the, those stories. Yeah, I mean, we're lucky um, with the Chicago Theological Seminary that the Interreligious Institute is a part of, um, that uh, the, the seminary is very liberal and very um, diverse. And also, uh, you know, one of their slogans is, we're not radical, we're just early. Um, they were uh, on the forefront of um, civil rights, hmm. um, gay rights, and have been, you know, very much active in social justice issues throughout their history. Mm -hmm. um, and also, I would say, very supportive of the arts, as my job is the um, coordinator of creative initiatives um, at, at the Institute. So, um, and I believe that um, that the folks at the Institute and, and the seminary really do support the power of arts. And so when we... Mm -hmm. um, when we looked at uh, this podcast, the idea was how do we do the crossover between, you know, we're going to have some um, theology students and some listeners who are um, at, a, at a level of studying theology that are different than just, you know, somebody off the street who wants to learn more about their Muslim neighbors. And so trying to incorporate this idea of the story, which hopefully hooks you in and then... Um, and then having the, the conversation go to a place where hopefully then you walk away and you learn something. And so it's not, you know, so that there's a, there's some takeaway on a different level. So, and then we also, people access this work from different places, right? So you can, you can, sometimes people access it from the brain or they, they just give money and then that they access from their pocketbook. And then that kind of leads to some opening of the heart or, or vice versa. And then yeah. there's different work that goes on as, as how people engage initially. Um, but in my experience, and maybe it's, you know, from my work as an actor and a writer is, is to engage people from the heart first. Mm -hmm. um, but it can't just be that. It can't just be like, oh, what a sad story. Oh, yeah. refugees. Oh, you know, but the, what, what comes out of that? How, what, what do you, what happens with, um, to you and how do you take your privilege? Um, if you are somebody who has, um, privilege on whatever level that is, skin color or religion. So for you yourself, then what, what would be one inspiring thing that you feel like you've learned about Islam or about Muslim life through these conversations um, on Our Seven Neighbors? Oh, my goodness, so many things. Um, you know, I was aware of uh, similarities between Christian faith and, and Islam, certainly, and, and especially through my work with um, my storytelling show, you know, hearing that, you know, that Mary and, you know, the similarities, uh, how Jesus is a revered figure in Islam and things, things that I had come in knowing, I would say that um, I have expanded, it sounds so cliche, but um, how the similarities that we really do have and that mm -hmm. people, people don't want to admit, we want to look for the differences and we want to say, oh, you know, she's wearing a hijab or they say Allah, which is just another word for God, or, you know, like this, this, like this, this immediate need to put up walls and make differences instead of um, looking at those as man-made differences and that they really don't exist. And I would say that the more Muslims I meet and talk to and the people doing the work, the nonprofit workers and the folks who are doing this work day to day, um, you know, has taught me so much. Yasmin, what about for you? You're obviously in conversation with, with people that you know and are familiar with already, but has there been something that's um, that you've learned uh, through this intra-faith dialogue, this this dialogue uh, among your friends and peers, something that stood out and even surprised you? I mean, I already knew that my friends were smart and brilliant, but I think sometimes I would just listen to them and talk and be like, wow, so many other people need to hear this and so many other people need to hear you. And I think that's what kept us going. Um, my producers like Liz Schlemmer and Aditya Banlamudi are actually non-Muslim radio reporters. So to have their perspective on, you know, questions we should ask or where we should dig deeper so that non-Muslims can better understand has been really helpful. I think the whole process of this, of building this podcast as a platform has really been the aha moment because 
I've never before had that kind of editorial control to tell stories and share stories about my own community um, with my community as the focus rather than, you know, the editor or the news outlet or the audience goal as the focus. Um, it really is putting my community and my friends and the, the issues facing um, Muslim Americans right now at the forefront in a way that I've never been able to partake in before. Um, and it's really sharing the voices in a lot of ways that I hadn't been able to hear before. So just the process of really building the podcast um, and reinforcing that what my friends have to say about their experiences is truly important has been the main aha for me. I also think if you're looking at this week and the past couple of weeks, actually, with um, the protests going on in the country um, after the deaths of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, I think um, white supremacy has this nice way of putting a blanket over everyone that's not white. Um, it has a way of grouping the other into subgroups that are not diverse. So you recognize the Muslim as other. You recognize the Latin as other. You, re you recognize the Black as other. But you're unable to recognize the diversity and the rich um, stories within those groups. Not all Black people are the same. Not all Latin Americans are from the same countries. Not everyone in North Carolina <laughs> is Mexican, FYI. <laughs> Shocking. <laughs> Not all Muslims are Arab, not all Muslims are immigrant, not all Muslims even are from the same denomination, which is astonishing to people. So um, not all of us speak the same language, not all of us even know Arabic. Um, it's been an opportunity to build this podcast to kind of say like, we don't operate under these subgroups in the way that you all have historically put us in. Um, we have rich stories in our own communities and it shows even in, um, the Seven Neighbors podcast, if you look at their list, literally there are different ethnicities, different backgrounds in each one of those episodes. It's not something that only I know or only I realize because I'm Muslim. If you just take off that cover, you'll realize there's so much diversity, whereas in representations before, there hasn't been. Um, and I think that's really the key of what we're trying to do here. On our show, one of the things that we like to do is to is to turn the mics over to our guests to see if you all have questions for each other. And so I want to take that opportunity now to see if uh, Kim or Yasmin, if you guys have anything that, that you'd like to explore further with each other's stories or about each other's shows or about storytelling more generally. I think what you're doing um, is it's such a privilege to listen in on these conversations. It's a real honor. Have you ever come up against something where you decide not to share it or um, it's too personal? Or I'm just curious if there's ever been a situation that you've had to edit out. Mm, yeah, sure. So I, I, what I've done, and I honestly take this more from anthropology more than I do from journalism. Um, we do touch on lots of personal things. I will say as the host, I'm usually the one that I don't talk about myself. I tend to put other people on the spot. And so there are some times where I will give my guests background that I don't want on air. For example, um, for the Black Muslims and Racism episode, one of the reasons um, why I wanted to do that episode was because I used to be married to a half Black man. And a lot of the things that I faced really opened my eyes um, in ways that hadn't been before. But I'd always seen Black racism in our community in different ways. But when I was married to a half Black man, it, it showed up much differently. So. I didn't put that on air. I shared that um, with my guests and I shared it later in a blog post, but I wasn't ready at that time to share that because I was like literally just done with my divorce. So there's certain yeah. things that like I don't share on air. I also give guests the opportunity. Um, for example, one guest had discussed that she was in an abusive relationship. She felt that she was okay to put it on air. We ended up um, cutting that out and the reason we cut out certain things is because I let all of our guests listen to the episode before we publish it. Hmm. So there, there are certain situations um, where you might've said something on air and you're comfortable and then you realize, you know, hearing it back, I'm actually not comfortable with just yeah. anyone being able to listen to that. And so yeah. I think that's really important is giving the guests the opportunity to say, hey, you said this on air, we shared this intimate moment, which happens with friends, right? But then when they're able to listen to it back, they're like, oh my gosh, a lot of other people are going to hear this too. And that might have been too personal. To give people mm -hmm. that right, actually, is something really powerful that we don't do in journalism, especially with minority communities, because we're all about 
kind of holding power accountable, but we, in the system that we're taught, you know, journalism 101, you need to learn to treat minority sources and sources that have been historically undercovered differently. And so the only thing that we really got out of that, we rarely got a lot of cuts for things that were personal. A lot of times that was our own editorial decision making. And then we said, we cut that out. How do you feel about it? A lot of the changes that we got were actually for accuracy. You know, I said that but that actually wasn't the right year or I said that or that wasn't actually the right place, which was really, really um, cool that people were wanting what they were saying to hold true and be really accurate, which is a goal of journalism and storytelling. And so I think just sharing the recording and sharing the final production piece back with our guests and that reciprocity is has been something really important as part of this podcast. Cool. Yeah, because it's so it's so intimate. And I think we own our stories. And I think there's real power in choosing how we share them and and honoring people's stories, you know, as as a curator of stories. And as a gatherer of stories, I'm very, um, I'm very aware of the honor it is when somebody shares their story with me and that they own it and that they have a say in what happens to it. Exactly. And it's, it takes away kind of like this just extraction, you know, give me your stories and I'll take them and put them out there. Yeah. You love it. Which Especially is- for me as a white woman, yeah. right. like, it's not my place. You know, I've got, uh, it's not my place. So yeah. It's not even my place as their friends. So there you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think my question that I had for Kim was, is there anything that someone has specifically said to you um, while you're interviewing where you just have like this aha, or it just takes you back and you have to like really just, I'm really big on quotes and what people have to say. So was there anything that was said to you where you just really wanted, you know, it affected you in such a way? that you oriented the episode around that or you, it really just affected you as an interviewer? Um, I would say, uh, y- yes, yes. And, and certainly in the interviews that I did with the Ramadan road trip and, um, and with a lot of the story gathering that we did there. And then also the follow-up um, organizational interviews we did, I would say that specifically um, maybe a couple different times uh, when I met with um, Hoda Katabi, uh, who um, is an Iranian American mm-hmm. and um, lives in Chicago and works in fashion and has a co-op with refugee and immigrant women and um, considers herself, uh, what does she call herself? An angry, uh, an angry daughter of immigrants, I think is, is um, one of her. Um, she she pushed me in certain ways that I had a I was I was I loved the interview I was thrilled with it and I spoke with her about an hour and, and you hear about you know fifteen minutes of it ten minutes of it um, but I loved when she especially with everything happening in the world right now I love being caught I love being caught in my privilege I love being caught in my white Christian privilege and a couple times she said things that I went oh but. Are you like I, I caught myself and I went, oh, look at that privilege showing itself right there. Um, and so I think those are remarkable moments for me that I'm super grateful for as I continue to learn to be um, less racist. And I continue to try to use my voice to lift up voices of color that haven't had the same privilege that I've had all my life. Um, and I would also say that um, that there were episode there was moments in the um, episode that we just released, I believe, episode four on being female and Muslim. Mm-hmm. I was surprised by um, some of the Quranic uh, um, history of that a woman's orgasm is important, and that 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 uh, that was a women's rights. That there wasn't there wasn't anything there wasn't an issue with women being married before there that that there was colonialism and it was um, it was patriarchy that came in and changed all these things. Um, and that was an aha moment for me. It was like, oh, of course, of course, it's colonialism and patriot, patriarchy. What, what's wrong with me? You know what I mean? That there was that things were different. And then, you know, uh, a lot of white men came in and shifted some of that um, is, is, is my take on it. So it's moments like that where I where I continue to learn that I'm so I'm so grateful for. I hope that I said some of that. Yeah, you did. Thank you for saying that. <laughs> I was, just, I was just genuinely curious because, you know, as storytellers, we all kind of have these moments when we interview and they're kind of what keep me going as a storyteller and some of my favorite parts. So I was just curious. Thank you for that. Do you get frustrated that you have to tell these stories? Do you get frustrated with um, with folks 
uh, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. Do you get frustrated? Do I get frustrated that I have to tell these stories? Yeah. Um, no. I think the opportunity to be able to share these stories is a lot of fun. This is a passion project. I'm not paid for it. Um, we put in a lot of time because we just care. Um, I don't necessarily get frustrated by the work. I get frustrated by the reason why the work feels so important. And again, the reason why the work. Yeah, maybe that's what I was asking. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like why, why is this still so important that I have to make myself human? (laughs) I just think that I can't even tell you how many, you know, moments of like cross thought I've had that I haven't been able to put together, but the Muslim community understands oppression we understand bias we understand discrimination and so with all that's been happening recently like we we see that and we know it it's really easy for us to recognize because in in some ways we faced it too but not as not as severely as black americans have faced and and blacks across the world actually are facing so i think it's just it's just been, you know, the reason why we have to share these stories is because everyone's just consistently put us in an inaccurate box. Um, And we've been silenced in that way because no one really gets to know who we really are. Um, And I think that's such a, such a shame for, you know, our fellow Americans to not know who we really are when we grew up here, when we were born here, when we're active members of our communities here, um, when we participate in all the ways that we do. um, I think that's the part that frustrates me. Yeah, I get that. And I get the sense that there was a lot of forethought in putting together both of your shows. Like, Kim, mm-hmm. your your Ramadan road trip actually happened last year, uh, last Correct. Ramadan, right? And then the show aired in March, I think was when you started the series. Is that right? Uh, April, yeah. April. Mm-hmm. And then, Yasmin, similarly, you, you did a, uh, a pilot episode that from what I gathered was, I think one of your your interviewees mentioned it was even two years before when before the, we when the show, mm-hmm. yeah, before yeah. it was released, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm curious about about that time in between. I mean, I you know obviously you've been mar- these ideas have been marinating you know <laughs> in your mm-hmm. in your hearts and souls for a long time, and you know part of that is is actually doing the work like editing and 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 making sure that the that the stories are put together well Mm -hmm. but obviously you know like you were saying Yasmin it's you know this is a passion project so it's it's outside of all the other work that you're you're doing anyway um so understandably you know things can can be on a on a longer timeline sometimes yeah for sure when we have that so I'm just I'm curious for for the both of you you know what that what the process of making these shows is is like uh, working with your teams? I can definitely start with that. Um, so the idea for this actually came up when I was in grad school for a class project that I did where I recorded interviews and then pitched it to the local radio station. And I was like, oh my gosh, people cared about these interviews that were focused mm. on um, gendered violence and Islamophobia, particularly for women who wear hijab. And it kind of opened my eyes in a way of like, this is stuff that we talk about with our friends and things that we're really aware of. Um, but I didn't realize so many other people cared to hear us talk about it. And um, from then it was choosing, you know, main issues that we thought I could find. Well, it's first identifying the right sources, right? You know, the topics Mm -hmm. that I can see the right people fitting into. And I think for the next season, it's obviously going to look different because we've got like our season one process down. But we did pre-interviews. We thought through the questions. Um, for like our ISIS episode, I read a whole book um, by Nadia Murad after hearing her speak at um, Duke University. And then I read her book. And then we, we figured out questions to ask an imam and ran by the questions to him, you know, to just say, are you up for this? Because these are some really hard questions. And he was. And it was great. Mm-hmm. And um, I think there's like a lot of people just think about, oh, cool. They just sat around a table and had a conversation. Right. right. Like, actually, no, like there were pre-interviews. We, we thought about questions. We read texts. Um, we really thought about sourcing and interviewing. Um, at the end, when we edited, 
you know, we're talking about hour half long conversations that are then cut down to under 30 minutes, but keeping really key pieces of content and flows of conversation and adding in music to share emotion. And, you know, it's a really long, hard process of storytelling. It's not just a conversation around a table, but if we made it sound like that, great, because it's the whole point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I would add the same thing. I mean, we've been in production with this for over a year, um, starting talking about it before the Ramadan road trip. And then the Ramadan road trip provided a lot of um, a lot of key elements for us. Um, but shaping it into, especially because, um, as mentioned, uh, I am a, a white Christian ally and um, my colleague uh, at the Interreligious Institute is the same. And so um, looking at, gathering a team around us who are more diverse in every way than we are um, was an important part of it. Um, and making sure that, you know, that we have um, support of an interfaith uh, community. Um, and, uh, you know, that included um, bringing on Dr. Rachel Mikva, who is a rabbi, um, as, as our regular conversation partner and um, checking in with folks periodically to make sure that we were crossing all the T's and dotting the I's. So I appreciate Yasmin saying that we, um, you know, hit different communities because that truly was our goal and, and to make sure that we are not misrepresenting in any way. And at some point somebody brought up, uh, we have 21 guests total. So there's three guests per episode and there's seven episodes mm-hmm. um, that we only had four men. And I was like, totally fine with that. Like <laughs> I'm totally fine with having, no offense, Jack, um, totally fine with having four male voices because I would love to have more female voices in the world um, yeah. of all um, shapes and sizes. And so, um, it's a big, long process, um, to make sure that, um, that you're doing it right and that you are, or as right as you can at this moment, you know, and that shifts all the time, but, um, that you are allowing the full story to emerge as much as, as much as is possible. Yeah. I think, I think that a lot of what both of you, uh, just reflected on, uh, relates a lot to my experience trying to put this show together and that intentionality that's going into it. Um, so yeah, I really I appreciate the hard work that both of you have done. You know, when I reach when I reached out to both of you, it was as I was ramping up for this new phase uh, or this new iteration of our show. Uh, typically we record in studio it's a live radio show and you know there's an intentionality behind that too that we really want people who are sometimes literally neighbors you know living in the same in the same city um, to be able to sit together eye to eye and and look at each other as they're having these conversations and and obviously we can't do that right now so you know I've been intentionally looking out out to the wider world to see who you know, could still bring in that same, that same energy. And, um, and part of that, I'll just share, being a member of the Baha'i community, there was a letter that was released from the International Governing, Governing Institution of the, of the Baha'is that was released around the time um, that the world was uh, starting to go into this shutdown mode, encouraging that that the community stay involved with this discourse. And and there was a quote from from that letter that was particularly inspiring to me to 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 set out in this way for the show. So I wanted to share it with you now. It says, at a time when the urgency of attaining higher levels of unity, founded on the incontestable truth of humanity's oneness is becoming apparent to larger and larger numbers. Society stands in need of clear voices that can articulate the spiritual principles that underlie such an aspiration. And when I think about your shows and the, and the goals of your shows and what you all are aspiring to do, um, I see you all as, as, as manifesting the spirit of, of this statement. So I just wanna recognize that and and thank you for being those those clear voices calling for you know the recognition recognition of our shared humanity and really our the oneness that that links all of us together. That was beautiful. Thank you, Jack. I really appreciate yeah. that. Thank you. Well, this has been really a great conversation, and um, I want to thank both of you for for taking the time. Um, 
Yasmin, can you share a little bit about how folks uh, can find out about uh, me and me and my Muslim friends? See, I was about to do it again. Me and my me and my me and my Muslim friends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, you can find us on me and my Muslim friends.com. Um, we're also available on Spotify, Stitcher and Apple Podcasts. Awesome. And, and you have uh, one season out and you're going to be creating a new season hopefully soon. Inshallah, yes. as they say. Inshallah. I was going to throw the inshallah in there. I mean, <laughs> you know, we, we have so many ideas for season two. At this point, the issue is going to be narrowing it down. So sure. we're really eager and excited. So, yeah. That's great. That's great. And Kim, um, Our Seven Neighbors is, is live and in full effect right now. It is. Yes. You can find us uh, at OurSevenNeighbors.com, which will take you to our podcast page at the Interreligious Institute. Um and we have four episodes currently released. We took one week off, and then the final three will be released in the next three weeks. So you can look for those, um, and we're available iTunes and everywhere you find your podcasts. Cool. And we also, you know, have a whole video series that we launched after the Ramadan road trip. So there are six themed oh, cool. videos on being Muslim in America, um, allyship, on Ramadan, foods of Ramadan. There's some really, I think, I'm really proud of Um these delightful videos and some are hard some are funny um and they're short so if people want to check those out um and they can use them as educational tools for communities as well um that's on the website i can't imagine anybody going through watching or listening to any of your uh, either of your shows and and not ending up with some some muslim friends on the other end of it so i encourage everybody (laughs) to to make to meet some neighbors and make some new friends thanks jack It's been good to meet you, Kim. You too, Yasmin. I really enjoy your podcast. Thank you. Thanks so much. Dear listener, that's a wrap on this week's Interfaith-ish. I want to again thank my guests, Kim and Yasmin, and I encourage you to check out both their shows right after you're done with this one. As always, I want to give a shout out to my fellow interfaith astronauts, Miranda Hovmeyer and Sue Katz Miller, and our musical maestro, Jeff Philosopher. And of course, thank you, dear listener, for spending your hour with us. You can find our entire back catalog of interfaithish episodes wherever you find and enjoy podcasts. Be sure to check out the special episode I released last week, featuring voices from the protest during our president's visit to the John Paul II Shrine in D.C. I spoke with clergy and lay people, students and families from various religious backgrounds about how they are feeling in this moment and how they read Trump's now infamous Bible photo op. You can follow us on social media at Interfaith-ish. Leave us a voicemail on our special listener line, 202-599-2953. And keep writing us about the Interfaith-ish you wish to dish at interfaithish at gmail.com. That's I-N-T-E-R-F-A-I. T-H-I-S-H at gmail.com. Interfaithish will be back in two weeks. Until then, keep it locked to WOWD 94.3 FM for great music and programs seven days a week, streaming online at TacomaRadio.org.